So, we need to um, follow up on something that came up last week. We were talking about progressive revelation, and we talked about that in terms of both dispensationalism and covenant theology. Covenant theology sees the sees Israel as the church in the Old Testament, which kind of faded out with the new covenant, and then the new covenant or the New Testament church took over. It kind of came out of Israel. So Israel is the church in the old covenant, or the Old Testament, and New Testament church is a church in the New Testament, which I guess makes sense. So all the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament were really given to the church, not specifically to national Israel. And since Israel isn't in the picture anymore, all of those promises will be fulfilled in the church. Okay. And I made the comment last uh, week that uh, none of that is explained anywhere in the Bible. It's just that somebody came up with that idea somewhere. And I mentioned that the Bible never says that Israel was the church in the Old Testament. And Wes pointed to a verse that used the word church in reference to Israel. So I looked into that, and so we're going to go over that. The basic problem, well, one basic problem in um, our understanding of Scripture is that we get our brains get calcified around a particular idea, and then we apply that to every situation. For example, when you hear the word gospel, what do you think of? Okay, yeah, literally it means good news. But what good news does the gospel convey to you? Right. So that's our usual understanding. That this is this is what I call our New Testament mindset. It's very dangerous, and we'll talk about why. But yeah, we usually think of the gospel, the word gospel, to mean Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that paid the penalty for our sins, so we can avoid judgment. And we tend to apply that meaning to that word wherever we read that word in the Bible. But it doesn't mean that every time. Our brains have calcified around that definition. That's one reason I like going back to my old King James, because <laughs> the words, what they meant in, you know, 1600, don't mean the same now. Right. And it makes you think a little bit as to what do they mean. Mm -hmm. you know, it, I want to, it forces you to do a little bit of work to exercise. Right. And that's good. Um, I think of, of passages that talk about John the Baptist going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And when Jesus started his ministry, it says he preached the gospel of the kingdom. And um, when he sent the disciples out, he sent them out to teach, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's not the same gospel. In fact, we shouldn't really... Yeah, we shouldn't really use the word gospel in those contexts, but many English translations do, because it means good news. So John the Baptist 
preach the good news of the kingdom. This is the Old Testament kingdom. He's talking to Jews. Okay. He's not talking about the new covenant. He's not talking about Christ's death, burial, resurrection. When Jesus started to his ministry, he went around teaching the good news of the kingdom. And what was the good news of the kingdom? John the Baptist's message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand in, in the person of the king. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. So he saw the Messiah and said, oh, the kingdom is here because the king is here. Gospels are still Old Testament. Yeah, those four are in the wrong section. They are transitional. Yes. Yeah, Jesus was talking to Old Testament Jews about Old Testament issues, but his goal was to bring them up to speed with what God was about to do because he kept telling them the real essence of the Old Covenant, what it was all about. The, the Pharisees' focus on the external obedience didn't cut it, and he, he made that point over and over again. With God, it's, it's what's in your heart that counts, you know, not whether you, you tithe your caraway seeds. You know, that, that's the different issue. It's almost as if he waited those 400 or so years so that the common people would kind of forget some of that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. So this is a problem we have about a lot of things. We get a, a, an idea in mind about something, and then we apply that idea wherever we see the terminology, but it doesn't always mean that. So we have to break that calcification around our brain so we can be more flexible in understanding what Scripture says. And the same thing applies to the word church. When you hear the word church, what do you think of? Some people think of a building. Yeah, gathering the believers. Again, the called out ones, okay. That's what the word literally means. The Greek word ekklesia, translated church, means called out. We think usually in New Testament terms. We have a New Testament mindset. The church is God's people. But the the word church, ecclesia, didn't always mean that. And, and we're going to go into other meanings for that in a second here. Another example is the word holy. The word holy originated as a secular word. It simply meant to be set apart for a particular purpose. There was no religiosity or morality or anything involved with it. I have a variety of pens and pencils, and I use each one for a particular purpose. Some people use the same pen or whatever for everything, I think. How can you do that? <laughs> so I have, yeah, I have a, a different pencil or pen for each purpose. Well, those pens and pencils are holy because they're set apart for a particular purpose. No, it's not holy. 
the word holy doesn't doesn't gain any moral context until it's adopted by God. God is holy. He is holy in the sense that he's set apart, but also in the sense that he is righteous. He is moral. He is the definition of morality. So we tend to see the word holy to mean righteous, uh, moral, but it doesn't always mean that. You got to take it in context. And we saw that last time when we looked at Isaiah 7.14. You have to look at the passage in context. You can't take your modern understanding of things and read it back into an old passage. It doesn't work. So the same is true with the church, the word church. Right? So the Bible does, in Acts 7.38, use the word church, ecclesia, in reference to Israel in the Old Testament, but not in our usual understanding. We see that and we say, oh, the covenant theology people must be right. Israel is the church in the Old Testament because it says so in Acts. No, we'll get to that as we go through this chart. I find it interesting that Acts 7.38 and the New American Standard does not use the word church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, it's... Um, We'll get there when we get to 738. It's going to be the last verse we look at. Okay, I'm sorry. But no, that's okay. You're right. You're right. And just to finish that idea, the only translation that I could find that uses church in Acts 738 is the Old King James. All the rest translated congregation. So we're still dealing sort of with this historical uh, propriety thing that we talked about. Thank you. Uh, that we talked about last week, looking at things in the, con the historical context, because that's what we have to do with definitions of terms. All right. So let's let's um, read a little introduction at, at the top. It says the word church has a particular meaning to modern Christians that they often apply to every use of that term, regardless of the context. The term is ecclesia and literally means called out. We have been programmed to think of the word in the New Testament context and in reference to the people God has called out of the world to be his own, which group Christ has promised to develop and protect. However, as with all words, this one must be defined in the particular context in which it is used. Sometimes the word does relate to the New Testament organization that comprises all who place their trust in Christ's sacrifice to remove their guilt or the guilt of their sin and make them suitable for heaven. However, it was originally a secular word, so its religious connotations are not absolute. And then we have the chart that explains this. So down the left, I found three uses of, of the word ecclesia that we translate church. And you'll notice right under the chart there, there's a little footnote. Uh, these are the, the meanings uh, that Vine has in his book expository dictionary of Old Testament, New Testament words. And these are not all the passages, by the way. This, this is just enough to give you the idea, but there are more passages than this. And then you have the context of the passages, and then based on the context in the right-hand column, you have the meaning. So the first meaning or use of the word ecclesia is as an assembly. 
Okay, we won't look up all of these verses because we don't have time, but um, a couple of them we will. So Acts 19.38, that was a good year. Uh, <laughs> some good music came out of 1938, I thought. <laughs> in the context of both well, this is all in Acts 19. It's The word is used as an assembly in verse 38 and again in verses 32 and 41. So the overall context of all three of those verses, uh, it says, God used Paul's ministry in Ephesus to bring many people of the city to himself so that they forsook their idolatry. As a result, the artisans who crafted the idols for worship were losing money and also wanted to protect the reputation of their goddess. So they rioted against Paul and his companions. And 1937, not 38. Has the word church. Okay. Yeah, no, we'll get there. As I said, these are not all the verses. <laughs> it's enough to give you the idea. So in uh, verse 38, I think it is. Um, the town clerk, you know, these people are rioting. They're standing there, it says, for two hours, shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Some translations have Diana. Diana was the Roman name. Artemis was the Greek name, same goddess. When the Greeks, when the Romans conquered Greece, they basically adopted much of Greek culture including their religion, so they just took the same pantheon of gods, just gave them different names. So Artemis is the, the moon goddess, the huntress, also the virgin goddess. The crescent moon is supposed to represent her bow that's bent back, and she's about to shoot an arrow. So the town, these people are rioting, and so the town clerk gets their attention and says, Hang on, guys. If Rome hears about this, we're going to be in trouble because Rome didn't want disturbances. You've heard of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. That was an iron-fisted peace. You behave yourselves or else. So the town clerk says, you guys better settle down because you don't really have any just reason for rioting. These guys haven't done anything illegal. He says, if, if, if they had done something illegal, or if they end up doing something illegal, you can take them to court. A lawful assembly. In that word, lawful assembly, is the word ecclesia. We could call it a church in our English. Yeah, 39, okay. And then in 32 and 41, the gathering of rioters there is, in both of those verses, is called an assembly, an ecclesia, a church. So the word we translate church in these passages simply was an assembly, a gathering, either the legal court gathering or a riot. It's all the same. Okay? It's all a gathering. So that's one meaning of the word church, at least the word we translate church. So the next one is the body of believers. This is our usual understanding of what the church means, the word church means. And we have several passages there. Matthew 16, 18 is the first time we have the word ecclesia used in reference to the body of Christ. This is where Christ says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it or overcome it. 
uh, Peter's confession, you were the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, based on that, you know, I will build my church. So this is, uh, this ecclesia is the assembly of those who put their trust in Christ. Acts 20, 28 and 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, or chapter 1, verse 2, refer to the church in the same way. In Acts 20, 28, Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of the church at Ephesus and encourages them to be on guard for themselves and the flock, which is a term the Bible uses for believers, and to shepherd the church of God. Okay. Now, as Rick was saying, church is an assembly. So you could say the assembly of God. So the denomination, the assemblies of God, is accurate because that's what the churches are. They are an assembly of God's people. And then 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, Paul addresses the Corinthian church as the church of God, which is a Corinth sanctified in Christ Jesus. So this clearly is a special kind of assembly. This is Christians, believers. And for the meaning part there, these assemblies are clearly local expressions of the overall body of Christ called the church. And I didn't put any more verses down, but you can go through all of Paul's letters, the first few verses, the salutation, where he introduces himself and he addresses the church he's writing to and characterizes them in these ways. So it's, there are a lot of places where it's done. Then a couple verses in Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and chapter 5, verse 23. The same idea here. For the first one, chapter 1, Paul is explaining the relationship of Christ to the church. All things are in subjection to him, and he is head over all things to the church, which is his body. And chapter 5 repeats that idea. Christ is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So church clearly has spiritual connotations here. These are the people of God. And finally, the last use, and we'll have to look these verses up, is uh, as a congregation. Not a church in the sense of the people of God, as we've just been seeing, but simply a gathering. It's roughly equivalent to the first usage, assembly, except it's in reference to Israel. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. You will remember this from our study of Hebrews a while back. In uh, chapter 2, the writer there is explaining the incarnation, Christ's taking on flesh, uh, basically so he could identify with us and be a, a representative high priest. So in chapter, if I can get over there, chapter 2, verse 12, well, verse 11, we have to get the context there, says, for both he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are from one Father. Now, the word Father is added there. It really says just one, but that's God, God the Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So the Son came from the Father. Believers belong to the Father. So Christ and believers are kind of on the same level during the incarnation when he came to earth and took on human flesh. We're all from the same Father. And for that reason, 
He says, verse 12, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation in the New American Standard. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. That's from Psalm 22. And then in 13, it's from Isaiah 8. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. So if you go back to the psalm, you know, David is, is talking about this in the context. He's going to proclaim uh, God's name in the congregation, the gathering of Israel. In the New Testament, it's the word church, ecclesia. But it clearly is not the people of God in the New Testament sense. It's the assembly of Israel. And we have the same thing going on there in, in Acts 7.38. Now, what's going on? What's the context here for Acts 7? Yeah. Yeah. In chapter 6, he was having such an impact in the Jewish community, because they were all Jews, that the Pharisees got upset, you know. He's horning in on their people, and so they don't like that. So they, they um, accuse him. They bring some false witnesses in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, that accuse him of speaking against Moses and the temple. And so in chapter 7, he responds to those false accusations, and he responds by rehearsing Israel's history. And by rehearsing Israel's history, He's saying, I agree with you guys. I'm not speaking against Moses. I'm not speaking against the temple. You know, I'm on your side in this. And he eventually shows them from their history and scriptures that the one they crucified was the Messiah. And of course, they don't like that at all. That sets them loose on him. So in this case, in verse 38, He's referring to Moses. Well, verse 36, he gets back to this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. That, of course, is a prophecy about Christ. And then 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. And it's a reference back there to Acts, or excuse me, Exodus 19, verse 17. We won't take time to go back there, but it says there that Moses called all the people to assemble at the foot of the mountain to hear the word of God. So and I put a note there in that, that first column that this is roughly equivalent to the word synagogue, which means the same thing as ecclesia. Ecclesia is to call out. Synagogue is to bring together. Okay, so when he told all the people who were camped there by the mountain, come over here, <laughs> he was both calling them out and bringing them together as a group, as an assembly. So that's what the ecclesia means in Acts 7.38. It doesn't mean the church, the people of God in our concept of church. It simply meant an assembly of the people. The people were gathered together to hear the word.
So we have that footnote at the bottom, the theological implications, bringing this back to where we started with covenant theology. It says the reference to Israel as the church in the wilderness, Acts 7.38 in the King James Version, may cause some to think erroneously that national Israel was equivalent to the New Testament church under the Old Covenant. That is, Israel was the church in the Old Testament and morphed into the New Testament church with the inauguration of the New Covenant. Therefore, national Israel is no longer part of God's plan. God is working only through the New Testament church. So all the promises given to the Old Testament church will be fulfilled in the New Testament church, since those two churches are really the same church. That's what covenant theology says. But as we just saw, that's not what the word church means. Okay, the, As I said last week, the Bible never says that Israel was the church in the Old Testament. It uses the word ecclesia in Acts 7.38 in reference to Israel in the Old Testament, but it doesn't mean church in the way we use the word church. It simply means a gathering or an assembly. So we discussed before, covenant theology has some, to me, some serious difficulties. It may have a longer history than dispensationalism, which started in the 1800s, rather late. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily right. It has some serious problems. So that addresses that issue of uh, Israel as a church. Any questions or comments about any of that? Well, Terry, I would say covenant churches or replacement churches don't use the old King James. They use a lot of the, the newer translations. And the old King James is the only one that says church. Right. So, yeah, it's like they're stretching to go back to that for that one thing. You know, yeah, it's not Jesus. Yeah. So let's see, this is, this is what we talked about last week, the historical propriety, that is the appropriateness or rightness of considering the historical context. If you know what the people were thinking about in the historical context, you can understand what the, whatever passage you're dealing with means. But if you don't consider it in that context, you're going to come up with a, a, a wrong meaning. And we looked at, we spent a lot of time last week on Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and have a child. Our New Testament concept of that as a prophecy of the Messiah has absolutely nothing to do with understanding what that passage meant, means in Isaiah. Because Isaiah wasn't thinking of that. He wasn't making, he was making a prophecy of the Messiah, but he didn't know that. And neither did Ahaz or Judah or anybody else. So you have to look at that passage in that historical context. What would that have meant to them? Not what does it mean to us in our greater understanding, because we know more about God than they did. Again, this is still progressive, the idea of progressive revelation. You can't go backwards. You can't read a modern concept into a historical text. You have to take the historical text in its own context. Is, uh, Terry, is this best the reason why in the Old Testament they did not say church? Instead, they used assembly? Yeah. I'm not sure that that concept is, is that clear. 
it's what we're doing is just looking at it from an objective point of view. So when we go to the Old Testament and we see that word, we have to understand it to mean assembly and not church as we understand church because they didn't understand it as church. They understood it just as gathering together. Okay. But I think there's Israelites. I mean, first of all, they were together. I mean, they were, uh, they were a theocracy, so they were supposed to be together. But uh, on their day of worship, when they went to the temple, I mean, what was it? It was a gathering. It was an assembly of people gathered together. So there was always this kind of idea going back to the Old Testament that there was a corporal sense of worship. Um, to Terry's point, they didn't have a technical term that they used for it. They were just gathering together to, to worship with one another. And um, the, the, the word for church <clears throat> existed even before Jesus Christ first said, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. And it just meant gathering and assembly. What made it special is that he, he said, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. So now he, now he, it's, it's a possessive thing. It's my, my church. It's my gathering. And from that point in time, that, uh, that word started to take on technical meaning. Uh, but even if you were to look at um, these two references in Acts, and tell me if my memory serves me correct, um, the examples used, it's talking about how some of them went through judgment for, for unbelief because um, they're rebellion against God. And when we think about the technical Christian definition of church, it's, um, it consists of those who are true, truly saved by God, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So when you look at the context in which that word is used in Acts, you can't be using it in the same technical way because some of those people were being judged by God for the rebellion, for their unbelief. Um, so, so you do have to look at the context and realize that that word, um, the context will tell you if it's meant in the technical term that we understand it in or if it's meant in the generic term that it had uh, been understood in prior to Jesus Christ bringing that word up. Right. But, but it is significant too that for very intentional purpose that Jesus chose that word. So we talk about you know, we, we're not to neglect the assembly of, uh, of believers, but we're not to forsake a gathering together. I mean, Jesus chose that word because the idea is that his believers would be together. Mm -hmm. You know, so once again, that idea that believers would kind of live their own life outside of the you know, original meaning of this word to begin with. So when Jesus says, my church, this idea is that his believers would be gathered together. Right. Yeah, so before Christ came along and made that his special term, <laughs> it simply meant a gathering. He changed it to mean identity. And so it's more personal, it's more specific. Just by calling it my church. Yeah. I mean, that right there, he created a new meaning for those specifically who are gathered for him, but those that belong to him. You know, this gathering belongs to him. So that's that was um, his first reference to it. And you can see just from his usage, that would be something that was set apart from just any regular gathering or congregation. Okay, so what we did there, going through the definition of these terms and stuff, that is hermeneutics. <laughs> That's what you do when you practice hermeneutics. You apply these principles, and going through definition of terms in context is part of that process. So now we get into the fifth principle, ignorance. Some people will be able to identify this, <laughs> identify with this better than others will. The point here is that everyone suffers from this. <laughs> the greatest biblical scholar of all time, human scholar, suffered from this. It basically has to do with the fact that we don't know everything. <laughs> 
and we can understand everything. As we saw before, under the accommodation of Revelation, God revealed his truth to us in terms that we could understand. He, he kind of had to dumb it down for us. And that's because we are we who we are. We're limited. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to God. He hasn't revealed everything to us. And I put Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 there with a question mark because it doesn't really apply here. <laughs> it gives the idea. God says there, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. But in the context of that chapter, he's not talking about how much we know or don't know. Well, there are a couple of applications, a couple of interpretations of that passage. He tells them in the previous chapter, in the first part of chapter 55, that he will restore them after judgment comes. But then he tells them just before, I think verses 6 and 7 of 55, that they kind of need to straighten up. They need to change their ways and their thoughts. And then he says in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8, because my ways are not your ways. So one possible understanding is he's saying, you guys are sinful and I am holy. So if you want to get back in line, you got to change your ways to match my ways. Another possibility is he offers them restoration, even though they had rebelled. And he's saying, you guys wouldn't have done that. People want revenge. They don't exercise mercy. Your ways are not my ways. <laughs> I'm a merciful God. He says that other places too. He's slow to anger, quick to forgive. So either of those meanings, I think, fits. But it doesn't really relate to how much we know or don't know. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, those baptized for the dead. That meant something to the Corinthians, but we have no idea what it means. There are some speculations. One of the sources I found said that there were 30 explanations for what that phrase means, baptism for the dead. And he said that all of them have problems. Unfortunately, he didn't list them. I came up with five of them, but from different sources, but they all have problems too. In the, in the context, Paul is addressing the Corinthians, some people in the Corinthian church who, were, who did not believe in the resurrection. He gives a bunch of arguments to show that resurrection isn't necessary. And one of those is this point. He says, if there is no resurrection, then what are those people going to do who are baptized for the dead? The word for there is the key. Does that mean on behalf of, or in the place of, or because of? It's the word huper. We get our word hyper from it. It can have a variety of meanings depending on context. But in this context, what does that really mean? Nobody knows. It could have been taken out of the paganism that surrounded them. They, the people in the Corinthian church came out of that pagan culture. It could have been something that was practiced in their uh, pagan worship. Don't know. The Mormons, yeah, the Mormons believe that it means that you can be baptized on behalf of someone who has already died. In Mormon theology, you can't make any progress in heaven unless you're baptized in the temple. So if you have a relative who has died without being baptized, 
you can be baptized for them. So your baptism is credited to their account so they can go on and make progress in heaven. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. So nobody really knows what that means. Baptized for the dead. There have been a lot of suggestions, but they all have problems, hermeneutical problems. So we just have to sit there and scratch our head and say, who knows? Well, what it doesn't mean. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know so I mean, sometimes you just got to go through the process of elimination and say, okay, for sure, it doesn't mean that um, that those who are dead, that we can somehow be baptized on their behalf, because that's not, we know that's not taught anywhere that would be antithetical to the mm -hmm. gospel and antithetical to a lot of teaching. So we can safely eliminate that and still at the same time not be sure exactly what, what it refers to. Yeah. So Paul is giving it as an argument in favor of, of resurrection. So it had some kind of impact on them. You know, the implication, he doesn't come out and say this, but the implication is that baptism does have some kind of eternal benefit for somebody, okay? And if there is no resurrection, then you don't have any eternal benefit. And when he makes his reference, he says, why are they? They, yeah, some he people were doing that. Yeah, someone, yeah. someone else, uh, someone outside the faith, I would say. Yeah. So basically, we need to get comfortable with not having an answer for every question. This is frustrating. When I was in seminary, one of the teachers, I forget which class it was, it might have been a, a hermeneutics class. He said the purpose of seminary is not to give you all of the answers that you're ever going to need. It's to show you where to find the answer. <laughs> And I would add how to find the answers. So you have all these resources that you can check and you have the processes to use in checking those resources so you can come up with an answer. But you may not. <laughs> you may come up with a question that the Bible just doesn't talk about it. Years and years ago, when I was teaching a Sunday school class, the issue of the, of the debate between predestination and free will came up. And uh, I said, well, that's a tricky one because the Bible teaches both. It teaches that God does the choosing, but whosoever will may come. And the Bible never shows how those go together. And so this person in the class asked, well, and how do you answer the question as to how those go together? And I said, I don't know. The Bible doesn't, doesn't say how they go together. The, I suppose the, the logical fix, if that's the right word, God chooses, and the ones he chooses are among the whosoever will, <laughs> and they come because he has chosen them to come. The Bible really doesn't talk about free will. It talks about responsibility. I was about to say sovereignty and responsibility. And responsibility, yeah, yeah. So the question is raised in, in Romans, again, 1911, Paul anticipates the question, some of you are going to say, how can God find fault if people don't have a choice? God it chooses. You know, you're, and what's Paul's answer to that? You can't ask that question. If God's in charge, you aren't. It reminds me of the end of Job, actually the whole book of Job. Job is so upset because he's suffering unjustly. I don't deserve this. And he has to deal with his so-called friends who are accusing him of 
being guilty is no I'm not he's all through the book I want my day in court <laughs> I, I want some justification here so at the end of the book God says okay you can have your day in court but first where were you when I laid the foundation of you <laughs> he spends a chapter or two on his sovereignty and then he asked Job okay what did you want to say and Job says never mind I said too much already yeah so a lot of people are not going to be satisfied with that okay. but what else are you going to do you know that's that's what you're handed that's what you have to deal with and what we see from Paul is he doesn't care if you're satisfied exactly right. it's the way it is yeah. take it or leave it's it I would say, how can a just God save anyone? Yeah. yeah. Or how could a just God not condemn someone to hell? Because they broke the rule. If he's just, he's got to support the rules. Also, because we're ignorant, be wary of anyone who holds a dogmatic position on a questionable issue. You find these preachers all the time. You know, they're just up there preaching and pounding the pulpit and all of that stuff. And what they're talking about doesn't have a clear answer in Scripture. The louder the preacher preaches, the less I listen. They're trying to cover up some with a lot of noise. In the homiletics class in seminary, the teacher talked about, uh, and I'm sure there are different versions of this floating around, but uh, the, the preacher would had his notes there and in the margin he said weak point shout <laughs> shout louder or pound the pulpit <laughs> so you get the point across by being dramatic instead of having a solid point to make so be careful people come up with all kinds of weird ideas and uh, you can't be sure about that because scripture doesn't deal with that issue in a clear way exactly were you getting that Mm -hmm. and, um, and I've said this before, but if someone is saying that you can only get this from the original languages or this is from church history, that's usually a first sign that it's, a, it's cultish thinking. Yeah. It's yeah. something they've developed in their own kind of closet. That's a, a fallacy, a logical fallacy called hypostatization. Research shows. Which research? <laughs> How is it done? You know, who did it? Where are they qualified? <laughs> Yeah, generalities don't work. I remember listening to a pastor once. He was preaching away, and he made a point, and there was dead silence in the congregation because what he said made absolutely no sense. <laughs> He's preaching from a particular text. It, it was not in the text. And we're all sitting there going, what? And he saw no response, no amens or anything. And so he said boldly, said, Amen, this is the word of God. I thought, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not even in there. <laughs> and then there was a smattering of a few weak amens here and there around the congregation. I thought, oh, man. Be careful. Nobody has all the answers. And there are some things that you don't have answers to because God hasn't given them. So when that happens, you have to be honest and say, I don't know, we can explore it, you know, as we did on this chart, you know, we can go through the process and explore it. And even when you do that, you may not come up with an answer. But Terry, don't you times put uh, questions like this uh, into our, our, our study of the Bible? 
so that we will continue to dig and to um, uh, to explore and to try to understand the Bible. Uh, if we understood the Bible completely, uh, we would be like God. Yeah. We're not going to get there, but uh, there are so many mysteries still to be uncovered, and that's what makes the Bible fascinating. Mm -hmm. I'm not in a position to evaluate God's motives, but obviously he wants us to grow. Obviously he wants us to trust. So he gives us opportunities to do both of those. Yeah, and scripture is meant for mm -hmm. That's why be diligent. That's yeah. Second Timothy 2.15 says be diligent. The idea there is that it takes a lot of work to understand yeah. the scriptures. Put your whole self into it. Yeah, and, uh, and Paul, Peter says about Paul's writings, the untaught and unstable, right? The untaught and unstable distort. They twist his, even though they're hard to understand. He says they're hard to understand, but the untaught and unstable don't twist and distort them to their own destruction. So Peter even found Paul's writings hard to understand. Right? So I mean, it, it's just it takes work. Um, it's not meant to be easy. And I think one of the marks of a believer is someone who continues to seek out God's God's will through His Word. Think about how many how many years have you been studying the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I was an English major. You do the math. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we're out of time. So just for preview for next week, the next principle is the difference between interpretation and application because people often mix those up. Actually, they skip interpretation <laughs> sometimes and go right into application, and you get into problems. All right, low, well, we're way over time. So let's close in prayer.